Blog Talk Radio. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Our helper, he amid the flood of mortal wills prevailing. For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great. And armed with cruel hate On earth is not his equal Did we in our own strength confide Our striving would be losing We're not the right man on our side The man of God's own choosing Dost ask who that may be Christ Jesus it is He Lord Sabaoth His name From age to age the same And He Thank you for joining us with another edition of Theology Matters, and I'm your host, Devin Palou, and have a special edition of Theology Matters, as we are going to have a friendly dialogue on the issue of Sola Scriptura. I want to dedicate this show uh, to my good friend, Miss Oda Hooks, who was uh, probably in her mid-80s and uh, recently passed away uh, about two days ago, and uh Incredible woman, loved theology, loved apologetics, uh, just a, just an amazing, amazing woman. So she will definitely be missed, so I want to dedicate this show to her. So we need to go ahead and get right to this, because we don't have a lot of time. Um, if you have not liked this yet on our Facebook page, uh, make sure you go to Theology Matters uh, with the Palouse on Facebook, and you can see, or hear, I should say, a lot of our... Uh, past shows. Uh, we've done this Reformation Month for about two or three years straight now, and it's been a, a big success. Last week we did a debate on the issue of purgatory with Tony Arsenal and uh, our friend Doug Beaumont. I guess I should call it more of a dialogue rather than a debate, and it'd be the same uh, true for this as well. We're going to use the same kind of uh, format with that. So, Without any further ado, representing the Roman Catholic view on this topic will be Doug uh, Benscooter. Doug is a member of the American Catholic Philosophical Association and the Knights of Columbus. He has a BA in philosophy, uh, BA in philosophy from the University of North Texas, a Master's of Theological Studies from the University of Dallas, and is currently a candidate for an MA in philosophy from the Holy Apostles College and Seminary. Nathan Taylor uh, will be representing the Protestant view. He's a graduate of Biola University, um, Theology, uh, Westminster Theological Seminary with MDiv, and Talbot School of Theology with MA in Philosophy. He is a uh, pastor at the Bridge Church in Simpsonville, 
South Carolina, where he regularly preaches and teaches the youth group doctrine and apologetics. So both of these gentlemen have actually been on the show before. Nate has been on and done uh, two or three debates now. And we had Doug on to uh, walk us through Aquinas' five ways a while back. So, gentlemen, are you there? Hey, I'm here, Devin. Good to be on the show. Hey, how you doing? Nate, it's good to meet you. Well, you as well, Pied. All right. Um, so kind of the format, we're going to have uh, Doug start off with a kind of a five-minute opener as to some of the issues uh, he sees with Sola Scriptura. Uh, from there, we'll give Doug five, or Nathan five minutes to uh, have a little five-minute opening statement, and then uh, Doug will ask his first question to Nathaniel. So, Doug, um, I will turn it over to you for five minutes. Okay. Um, well, um, as far as um, um, scripture and tradition goes, um, what we have, um, obviously, I'm a Catholic, and uh, I hold that um, um, uh, apostolic tradition is uh, equal to uh, sacred scripture. And um, as far as uh, biblical evidence, uh, is concerned, um, we have a number of passages that uh, we could look at. Um, first is First uh, Corinthians eleven two, um, where Paul says, "I commend you because you remember me and everything and maintain the traditions even as I have delivered them to you." Um, now there is also Second uh, Thessalonians uh, three six. Uh, now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is living in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you have received from us. And um, Second Thessalonians 2.15, um, So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught by us, either by word of mouth or by letter, and uh, I think that's the key um, that uh, that Catholics normally appeal to. Um, let's see. Uh, there are a number of uh, number of quotes, um, reformers. Um, does I have to say? Let's see. Uh, I apologize. I'm just uh, looking up some of the looking up some of these things. Uh, there's a well, not a reformer per se, but uh, I'm sure you're familiar with James White, um, a uh, reformed apologist um, who writes. Uh, there was nothing in the tradition of having someone read from the scriptures while sitting on Moses' seat that was in conflict with the scriptures, it is quite proper to listen and obey and obey the words of the one who reads from the law or the prophets, for one is not hearing a man speaking in such a situation, but is listening to the very words of God. And uh, let's see. Uh, let's see here. 
And and if you if you can't uh, or or don't want to use your full five minutes, don't feel like you you have to. You can end it at any time. Just just throwing that in there for you. Um, I'm sorry. What's that? Oh, I was just saying, don't feel like you have to use the full five minutes. If you don't have more, then that's okay. Oh, okay, okay. Well, I just have one more quote. Um, this is from uh, John Calvin, actually. Um, he says that uh, papists, um, which is actually a derogatory term, but uh, I'll go ahead and ignore that. Um, he says, Papists arm themselves with this passage for the purpose of defending their traditions, which include not merely certain foolish superstitions and uh, plural, uh ceremonies with which they're stuffed, but also all kinds of gross abomination directly contrary to the plain word of God and their tyrannical laws, which are mere torments to men's consciences. In this way, there is nothing that is so foolish, nothing so absurd, and fine, nothing so monstrous as not to have shelter under this pretext and to be painted over with this varnish. Now, he goes on to say that uh, I do not deny that there were certain traditions of the apostles that were not committed to writing, but I do not admit that they were parts of doctrine or related to things necessary for salvation. Um, Examples of that would be things like... Infant baptism, for example, which uh, the reformers held to, um, and certainly the uh, the canon of scripture. Um, so, um, uh, I don't know if that's five minutes or not, but uh, yeah, that's that's, that's, uh, that's good. Okay, okay, cool. Yep, that, that's that's right about five minutes. All right, Nathan, uh, go ahead and take a five-minute opening statement. Uh, You don't have to use your full five minutes if you don't want to. I'll leave that to you, and then we'll jump into the questions. Go right ahead, sir. Well, great, Devin. Thank you. Um, And I just want to first off, before I say anything, thank you for having me on the show, Devin, and um, thank you for having this uh, dialogue with me, Doug. It's uh, it's good to hear your remarks, and I'm sure we'll have a great discussion. I'm looking forward to it. So, I think the issue uh, we will be discussing uh, is very important because uh, it has to do with how we know God, how we know the God of the universe and how he has revealed himself to us. So with that being said, let me first uh, start off with defining um, Scripture alone. So we have some idea what I'm talking about. If I say sola scriptura, so if you don't know Latin, it's like, what's this guy talking about? So here's Scripture alone or sola scriptura. So with respect to special revelation. Scripture and Scripture alone is the only infallible rule for faith and practice. Let me say that again. With respect to special revelation, Scripture and Scripture alone is the only infallible rule for faith and practice. So uh, there are two things briefly I want to point out about this um, definition. First, Scripture alone does not deny the role of general revelation where God has revealed himself in our reason in creation and nature, and in our conscience. So we can know truths about God apart from Scripture in nature, but of course the Scriptures teach this in Romans 1 and 2, so this doesn't violate uh, sola scriptura, Scripture alone. 
Secondly, this definition does not deny the authority of the church or tradition, for that matter. I, as a Presbyterian elder, affirm the importance of tradition and uh, church authority in the Christian life. Um, This is why I hold to the great ecumenical creeds of the church and uh, to the uh, Westminster Confession of Faith. Um, I just believe that the authority of tradition and church uh, authority is fallible and is ultimately subjected to Scripture as the infallible rule of faith and practice. So let's go into the reasons here. The main and primary reason why I believe in Scripture alone is not because I just thought of it one night and said that would be a good idea, but no, I think the Bible teaches Scripture alone. Let's look in um, 1 Corinthians 4, 6, where uh, Paul writes, and this is 1 Corinthians 4, 6, I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefits, brother, that you may learn by us, that you may learn by us, not to go beyond what is written. Don't go beyond what is written. That none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. So the Greek word here um, for written is the Greek word gagraphitai. And this Greek word is used over 30 times in Paul's writings. And every time this word is used, it means scripture. So what Paul is saying here basically in 1 Corinthians 4, 6 is that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is scripture. So we are not to go beyond scripture um, for faith and practice. And so hence it follows that scripture alone is taught in this text. But I don't think this is the only text that establishes sola scriptura. I think there are others as well, and um, as time restraints go, but I will look at first Acts or second Acts 17.11. Acts uh, 17.11 to give the second uh, uh, text in favor of sola scriptura. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. So these Jews were called noble for subjecting the Apostle Paul himself to the scriptures. And if these Jews can be called noble for subjecting the Apostle Paul to, uh, to scripture, then how much more nobler are those Christians today who subject the church and tradition to the holy scriptures? So we see that the Bible teaches that there, we are not to go beyond Scripture, and we are even to subject the apostles or anything equal to the apostles to Scripture. And the reason why even the apostles and traditions and so on, the church, are subjected to the Scriptures is because of the very nature of Scripture itself. Uh, I wouldn't, uh, this wouldn't be a good discussion on sola scriptura unless I brought up 2 Timothy 3.16 and following. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. A man of God may be confident or sufficient, equipped for every good work. So um, the reason why the scripture is the highest authority is because it is breathed out by God himself. It is God's word. And when you read passages of Holy Scripture, it becomes very clear that this is a very unique book. It's clear that this book is God's written word, the highest authority for our faith. And no church, no council, no tradition is this, has this unique character of it and possesses this unique level of authority. And so it is clear when reading the Bible, pages of Scripture, that 
it is Jesus speaking to us. And this is why Christ Jesus can say in John 10:27, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And when you read Scripture, we know it is the very voice of Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, communicating to us clearly enough, clear enough for a nine-year-old child to read it and say, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. That completes my uh, opening statement. All right, wonderful. Uh, These questions will be taken cold, meaning that uh, neither of the debate... those in the discussion, I should say, uh, have seen the questions. I've not seen the questions. Uh, and so, Doug, I'm going to turn it over to you and let you ask your question, and then have, we'll have a 15-minute discussion or so. So uh, with that, go ahead and ask your question, and we'll let you guys just kind of have a back-and-forth uh, friendly discussion. Okay. Well, um, first of all, I'm glad that um, that Nathan brought up the passages that he did um, I think that First uh, Corinthians four six is probably the best case for um, their Protestant doctrine of sola scriptura. Um, my question, um, I- instead of addressing uh, the passages that uh, that Nathan brought up, um, I would ask, um, I would ask um, where. Um, where does the Bible, or does the Bible, in fact, um, teach that we should have a canon of Scripture? Oh, yes, that's a very good question. And as you know, Doug, this comes out a lot in these discussions with Catholics and Protestants. So what I'd like to say is that um, with the Scripture, there is not a list, like like an inspired table of contents. Um, found in Scripture, so that doesn't exist. I I grant that. But what I would want to say is that there is a criteria, a method of determining the canon of Scripture found um, in Scripture itself, and that was the uh, passage I cited in my opening statement, and that was, um, you know, Jesus' sheep will hear his voice, and God's voice is in his word. Um, And so I would say that that gives you a criteria that the Scriptures has that sort of self-authenticating nature about it so that when we read it, we say, oh, you know, this is God's word. Um, Just like, you know, there's no evidence, you know, that there was an inspired or infallible list of all the Old Testament books prior to uh, the New Testament being written, you know. So when Jesus cited the words of Scripture, he says, it is written, have you heard? And he would hold people morally responsible for that Scripture, even though there's no evidence for canon being written at that time. And so Jesus would hold people responsible just by merely citing the word of God. And I think that um, validates, the, it's, the Bible validates the um, self-authenticating nature of Scripture. And so when Jesus cites it, and then when he says, um, my sheep will hear my voice, and so we hear the voice of Jesus in Scripture, and that's how we know what books belong in it, even though we don't have a um, table of contents. Okay. All right. Well, well, I certainly agree with um, um, with you on the authority of Scripture. Um, that's not in question um, for either of us, sure. I don't think. Um, now, uh, you mentioned that you are a uh, Presbyterian uh, pastor. Is that correct? Uh, yes, I am. Do uh, apologetics teach apologetics to youth and um, a doctrine to youth, and so on. So, yeah, I'm a 
a, a Presbyterian pastor, um, and I affirm the Westminster Standards of, uh, and I uh, I hold to the Apostles' Creed and Nicene Creed and so on. So I don't take uh, okay. any exception to Westminster Standards at this point. Um, so that would be kind of my my theological position. Okay. Okay. Now, now, when it comes to something like infant baptism, for example, mm-hmm. um, would would you say that um, um, that this is a tradition that's not found in the Bible, but um, at the same time, um, it's authoritative because mm-hmm. um, it's not something that the Bible prohibits by any means, but at the same time, it's so widespread, um, um, you know, it, it's found in, uh, you know, Carthage, Alexandria, Rome, Jerusalem, and so forth. <laughs> Um, so would you say that, um, as far as tradition goes, that, uh, even though, um, it's, uh, inferior to scripture for, for the Protestants or, or, um, evangelicals, I'm not sure what you prefer to be called, um, um, it's still authoritative, nevertheless. Um, yeah, would you want me to respond to, you know, if I think it's in the Bible or not? Is that what we're kind of getting at here? I'm sorry, what's that? Well, would you want me to, to, you're asking me, do I think it's in tradition or in the Bible? Is that kind of what you're asking? Is that kind of the punchline of that, of that question there, if I can sum it up? Well, well, I, what I'm asking is, um, you know, even though tradition uh, for you may be inferior to scripture it's still mm-hmm. it's still authoritative in a sense that um that scripture is not but uh it still has it still has an authority for you oh okay i see oh so just there's a couple things i need to clear up here if, if you don't mind um so sure. the first is i i do think that uh, infant baptism is directly taught in the New Testament. And I think that the Bible, by good and necessary inference, um, teaches um, infant baptism, although, you know, the words infant baptism aren't in there, like the words the Trinity isn't in there, but I do think that it's clearly taught in the Bible, um, enough for me to have, you know, some degree of certainty about it. And the passage I would go to for that is, uh, as I said, 1 Corinthians 10, 1 and following, where, um, you know, all the Israelites as a group were passing through the Sea of Moses, and they said they were baptized. And in that group, it was family baptisms, which obviously included infants. And then you might say, well, that's Old Testament baptism. Why, you know, why even bringing that up, you know? Well, the reason why, why I think it's relevant is Paul says in a few different verses down, after giving this, he says, now these things took place as examples for us. So the fact that they baptized families, including infants, was written down uh, – for us as examples to whom the ends of the ages have come. So I, I would take it that the, the Bible does teach infant baptism. And um, I would say, yeah, tradition does have authority and it guides my interpretation of the Bible. I would say the church has authority. And I would say it's a real fallible authority. Um, you know, like a parent has authority over his, over his or her child. But parents can be wrong, but they generally have a functional sort of fallible authority that uh, works for our growth and sanctification in Jesus Christ. Okay, okay. So I mean, I, I I don't mean to to uh, change the subject or anything like that, but um, 
um, what you're saying since since the Bible. I mean, I, I agree with you that uh, you know the Bible teaches that uh, households were baptized, and uh, that may include infants. But uh, it doesn't explicitly say that infants were baptized. But what you're saying is that maybe it's uh, maybe it's implied that uh, infants oh. were baptized. Well, I don't think I'd want to say that maybe it's implied. I would say that it is implied. Um, and, you know, sola scriptura doesn't say that every doctrine has to be explicitly mentioned, but there can be um, implications and inferences and general criteria and general permissions that are given in scripture that range to a large broad uh, range of activity uh, that occurs in the Christian life. So, uh, you know, the Bible doesn't have to say directly, you know, abortion is wrong, but it does teach that life's hard to conception, and it does teach that, that, that killing a life is murder. And so you can infer from that, those sure. two statements, that uh, abortion is uh, murder. So it doesn't have to explicitly say it, um, as with the Trinity, but I, I think that um, Scripture is sufficient and that we can clearly and logically imply these things from the statements in Scripture. Okay, so so um, um, things like uh, things like the Trinity or the Incarnation, for example, um, they're taught in Scripture, but they're not explicitly mentioned in Scripture, um, even though they're they're essential doctrines to to Christian to the Christian faith. Um, That's is, is right. That correct? Yeah. Yeah, okay. that that, okay. that would be that would be right. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, I I also want to say that some of them are you know explicit. I would say incarnations a bit more explicit. Um, and depending on what you mean by explicit, I mean you know we have kind of the doctrine of the Trinity. You know, well that that's you know that's kind of an anachronistic to expect that to be in the Bible. That's just a concept that refers to a body of teaching in Scripture. So I mean that's kind of you know I'd want to state that. Right. Okay. Yeah. I mean. I mean. The Bible certainly does teach that. Uh, you know, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Um, um, but uh, as far as like uh, uh, one God and three persons, that that's something that uh, um, you know philosophers and theologians like Thomas Aquinas, um, th- they're the ones who um, who uh, elaborated on things like that. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I kind of see where you're going, um, and I kind of appreciate it in some way, but I want to be clear in this just so I'm not misunderstood. Um, you know, I would say the Bible does teach explicitly that God is um, one being and there's three persons. Um, in Matthew 28, in the name, the name there in Greek is singular, and Jews thought name represented the actual being of the thing spoken of. So one, one being, and then you have three persons in the name of the Father the Son and the Holy Spirit. So I would say that Trinity is explicitly mentioned, it, but that, that, that the word Trinity is not explicitly mentioned. Okay, okay. Yeah, I, I don't want to get off topic or anything like that. I sure. just, uh, I'm just, uh, I'm just curious about um, um, the nature of uh, your view of Sola Scriptura. Um, sure. So, um, well, in any case, um, for for now, I'm finished with my questions. Uh, if, if you'd like to ask me any questions, uh, you're certainly welcome to. Okay. Okay. Yeah, yeah, go ahead, and uh, we'll go ahead and start with 15 minutes uh, for you to go ahead and uh, ask Doug your question. 
Okay, great, great. Um, so, um, you know, there's many different infallible churches that claim to be infallible, or they rather there's different mm-hmm. churches that make the claim to be infallible. So, sure. How do you know that the Roman Catholic Church is a correct one that makes that claim? In other words, uh, why do you take the Roman Catholic Church to be truthful in its claims of infallibility, and not the other so-called infallible churches like Jehovah's Witness? Um, the Sedevacantists, uh, the Mormons, the Eastern Orthodox, there's like different actual Eastern Orthodox churches. It's very interesting. But So why do you take that specific one to be the one true infallible church? Well, that's, that's certainly a good question. It's not one that I was necessarily uh, prepared to answer, but I'm, I'm, I'm happy to address it. Um, yeah. I, I, I would appeal to uh, Matthew uh, 16, um where uh where Peter is referred to as uh rock um even though um some appeal to uh the notion that uh Peter is referred to uh Petros, which is sometimes referred to as small stone the the actual Greek word is lithos um for small stone um and Petros is actually the masculine form of uh, uh, Petra, which means rock. Um, so Peter is referred to as uh, as the rock of the church, and we can um, we can trace back to, um, um, for example, Linus um, would have been the successor of Peter, and we, we can go ahead and uh, and trace back. Um, I know that uh, Eusebius um, was probably the first um, to actually list all of the um, all of the successors of Peter, and um, he's um, he's given the keys to the to the kingdom of heaven. And um, the keys to the kingdom of heaven, um, it's a reference to Isaiah, which um, which uh, is basically um, an authoritative reference. Um, so Peter is given the keys to the kingdom of heaven, um, which gives him um, authority. He says, uh, Jesus says, uh, um, whatever you bind on earth is uh, bound in heaven. And uh, Peter, um, the apostles are given the key, are, are, are also said that, but they're not given the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Peter alone is given that, and so there's a uniqueness to Peter and so um that's why I would refer to to Peter especially as um as the um as the leader of the church um and uh especially given that we have um a list of uh, a list of successors of Peter as well so that would be my yeah, answer so, to that. Sure, sure, sure. That's okay. So there are a couple of things going on here. There, there's two actually. Um, first is I don't I don't take that that text to be uh, actually teaching the primacy of Peter. And if it were teaching the primacy of Peter, I don't think that implies Roman Catholicism. Let me just give you a few reasons why I think that, and you can kind of um, respond back to me on that. Um, so there is, uh, a, as you said, a masculine Petros, and then the 
the feminine Petra, so, um, you know, your Peter, Petros, and on this rock, Petra. And so genders, the gender changes there in Greek, and um, typically in the Greek language um, I've, I've studied, from my, my, my uh, studies on Greek, I've seen that um, when, when there's a different gender there, it actually is just referring to a different thing. So um, that's the same actual um, Greek word, and it's just in a, in a feminine form. And why, what explains the change to masculine to feminine then is that it's referring to something different other than Peter. So that would be one issue. The second issue um, that you brought up there, uh, so even if you grant, you just grant it, but that, yeah, the rock there is Peter and so on and so forth, I don't think that, that establishes the Roman Catholic claim that there's apostolic succession. Um, I, you know, if you look at Acts 1 and if you look at uh, 1 Corinthians 9, 1 and Ephesians 2, 20, uh, I'll just cite 9, 1 just right now. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? So what makes him an apostle is he's seen the risen Lord. And so, um, and, and it also says in Ephesians 2.20, the very foundation of the church is the apostles and the prophets. That was a foundational period, and it's not a successive period. And so for that reason, even if I were to grant that that is teaching that Peter is the rock, I don't see how that would imply Roman Catholicism. And then to your claim um, you ended with about there being a document that shows a succession, that's, you know, many centuries later, and uh, that would just be assuming the, um, the, that that was reliable, um, which if the texts I gave during the opening statement were correct, you're to subject them to Scripture according to, to uh, Luke in Acts 17 and 1 Corinthians 4, 6. So that's kind of my general remarks and all that. Okay. Well, um, there's certainly a lot to be said about that. Um, truth is, um, I don't really rest my case um, on um, Peter's supremacy on the fact that he is referred to as Petros. Um, it's more the fact that he is given the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Um, while I don't, um, while I don't agree that um, that uh, a change in uh, a, a change in gender necessarily um, makes it um, changes the meaning of uh, of the term. Um, I, I would mainly refer to uh, the fact that that Peter is given the keys to the kingdom of heaven as uh, as his authoritative um, nature. Um, now, um, now, what else is said um, as far as apostolic succession is concerned? Um, we have uh, Matthias, for example, given. Um, given um apostolic succession um given that given that Judas was uh was killed and uh so I I would appeal to I would appeal to that as an example of apostolic succession. So I, I, I don't think that um that there's anything that stops um apostolic succession after after one of the apostles dies. Okay, okay, good. A couple things there. Um, if you look at Matthew 18, it actually men- mentions the um, activity of uh, binding and loosing, which is what keys do, actually. So it's implied by that verse that the other apostles would have the keys to the kingdom. 
So I don't think that gets you supremacy of Peter, especially. And then if you look at Acts 1, um, it's, it actually says that um, it's necessary that Matthias saw Jesus, that out of all the people there, trying to find the, um, the reference here um, in, in Acts chapter 1, but um, what, it, what it basically says, okay, so I'll just, I'll just read it. So one of the men uh, who had accompanied us during that time that the Lord Jesus went in and among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. So they had to see his resurrection. That's what's referenced there as a criteria for an apostle. And Paul confirms that in the first Corinthians passage I cited. Um, so um, it seems to me then that, um, that the apostolic succession would close off. And um, if you think that infallible teaching ceased in the first century, as I do, I'm a cessationist. I don't believe that God speaks to us anymore except in the Bible. Um, then uh, according to 1 Corinthians 13, there wouldn't be any more apostles having that um, prophetic ability anymore um, because it says the prophecies will, 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 will cease, and it says when the completion comes, the partial will have to pass away, So, um, which refers to prophecy there, so in the context. So I guess what I'm getting at is that if we look at these, 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 these texts that you referenced, I don't think that it establishes the primacy of Peter, and even if it does establish the primacy of Peter, it seems to me um, that... Um, that there would not be this sort of apostolic succession since a necessary condition to being an apostle, you have to see the resurrected Christ. Okay. Okay. Um, uh, okay, good. Um, now, um, you mentioned uh, Matthew 18, um, and uh, the apostles are certainly um, given the, uh, the authority of binding and loosing, but what we don't have um, is... Uh, Jesus giving them the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and that's that's why I see Peter as being a um, unique apostle, um, as opposed to um, the other apostles. Um, now, uh, as far as um, as far as the apostles. Um, um, being uh required to uh witness the the resurrection of Jesus i see that as um a um a sufficient condition but not necessarily a necessary condition of being an apostle um paul doesn't say that um it's a requirement um to uh, witness uh, the resurrection of Jesus in order to be an apostle, he says that um, that he has witnessed the resurrection of Jesus, and uh, therefore he is an apostle. Um, so I, I don't I don't see necessarily the fact that I don't necessarily see that um, that Paul is saying that uh, you have to see the resurrection of Jesus in order to be an apostle. Um, Matthias, um, as far as we know, never witnessed the, never witnessed the, uh, the resurrection of Jesus. And yet he is, um, a uh, successor of Judas. Um, so, um, you know, as far as Linus goes, as far as, um, some of the others go, um, 
um, Eusebius. Um, we can we can question whether or not um, he's reliable, um, but uh, I I don't think that we have any reason to, to question his reliability, um, unless of course um, we have some uh, to use a, a philosophical claim, um, unless of course we have a uh, defeater of uh of what he has to say um but uh so far um I, there there really is no defeater that i'm aware of of uh of what eusebius has to say right i i totally understand that and i'll just start from the, the end of what you said and go to from the beginning um so for instance um it, the defeater would be just like the defeater is for um Irenaeus making the statement that uh, Jesus was 50 years old. And he says he received that from the apostles themselves. Um, so we know that that's false on the basis of Scripture. So right there, every person, you know, is consistent, and they use Scripture to check out things the church fathers say, and that one was, you know, everybody agrees is wrong, and we know that on the basis of the earliest documents. So we should go by the earliest document uh, to check out the tradition. That just seems like a common-sense principle. But you want to go earliest to a source to figure out what Jesus really taught. And if things further down the line... Um, you know, contradicts that, then you want to go with uh, the scripture instead of that further on tradition that we uh, we, we can't verify or authenticate. Now, I mean, it's I have to say it seems um, uh, unusual because binding and loosing is what keys do. That's why it mentions there. You know, that's why the keys are in the context in Matthew 16 with um, with binding and loosing. So, so Peter is given the keys, and then it mentions the binding and loosing activity. And then 18, you see that binding and loosing activity there as well. Now, you can't bind or loose without keys um, because that's what the keys are doing in Matthew 16. And so we're using the uh, Matthew as author there and looking at how he's using terms and so on. We see that that's a reference to the key activity because you can't open a door, you can't loosen a door without having a key in the first place. Um, and so um, we're not given any other uh, actual conditions for uh, the sort of apostolic office other than those mentioned in el- as being an elder. But um, as far as I can see, there would be no reason for thinking that it is just sufficient and not necessary since, since Paul mentions it. Um, and to say that there's other criteria uh, that are sufficient for making somebody an apostle, um, that would have to be derived from Scripture. But as we see in the two instances, it's always re- related to the resurrection of Christ. And uh, as for Messiah, it actually says he was with Jesus that time in Acts 1. It actually explicitly mentions that. That's why I referenced that text. Um, so th- that would be kind of my general thoughts on those sort of things. Okay, Doug, take a couple uh, minutes and uh, wrap us up here and then go into your question, your next question for Nathan. I'm sorry, you you, you want me to uh, ask uh, Nathan a question? No, I, I was. you can go ahead and take a minute to respond uh, if you want to kind of wrap up what was just said. And then you can go on to your next question, or if you don't want to respond, you can just go right into your next question, and you, and you have up to 15 minutes. Okay. Um, well, um, I'm not aware of um, Eusebius referring to Jesus as 50 years old. Um, now, um, that may be the case. Um, I'd uh, I'd have to... Uh, I'd have to see where exactly um where exactly that is. Um I, I I'm not I'm not questioning Nathan um on this, but I I'd have to see it myself. 
Um, as far as um, binding and loosing is concerned, I think that there's a deliberate um, omission by Jesus in Matthew 18 um, when he refers to uh, the other apostles as uh, having the authority of binding and loosing. He he, he explicitly um, doesn't he explicitly excludes um, mentioning uh, the keys to the kingdom of heaven, whereas he does mention it for for Peter. Um, so I, I think that there is a uniqueness for Peter, um, whereas the the other apostles um, they certainly have the authority, but um, I don't think they have um the same authority as uh as the apostle peter does um now uh as far as questions are concerned uh let me see here um uh let's see uh sorry about this i'm uh i'm on my computer here Oh, that's that's okay. okay. Take your time. Okay. Okay. Uh, you'll you'll have 15 minutes from when you ask the question. Don't feel like you have to take the full time if you don't want. That's fine. And uh, just let me know, and then we'll go ahead and start the timer. Okay. All right. Sounds good. Um. Let's see here. Um. Tradition. While he's looking that up, folks, next week, uh, next Thursday, we will be doing a show uh, with Bill Roach. We'll be looking at the new Paul perspective and uh, hope to have some uh, discussion on that uh, with some callers. So be looking forward to that as we continue our series in the Reformation Month. You can find us at Theology Matters with the Palouse on Facebook. Uh, All right, sounds good. Um, right. Well, um, uh, my question for Nathan would be: um, you, you probably expect this question at some point, um, <laughs> uh, as far as Second uh, Thessalonians two fifteen. Um, it says, uh, "Therefore, brothers, stand firm and hold fast to the traditions that you were taught, either by an oral statement or by a letter of ours." Um, how do you? How, how would you interpret that? that passage in uh in, in the context of sola scriptura. Right, right. Very yeah, very, very good question there. Um so then looking at stand firm and hold to the traditions that were taught by us, either by spoken word or by our letter. So the either or there in the Greek actually indicates that it's going to be the same content as the letter. So the the traditions they were passed down were uh the uh the exact things that they had uh, lit, written to them in a letter, according to the way that, that that Greek phrase functions. So I would take it that way, that it's just uh, scripture. But in the context, um, the traditions here are the traditions of the gospel. If you look at the preceding context there, uh, it says, to, to this he called you through the gospel, or our, I'm sorry, our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So I think the context he's referencing there is traditions, not some sort of uh, amorphous or um, unaccessible oral tradition that uh, I don't think people can trace from the apostles, 
but um, it's actually going to be the gospel itself that I think is is mentioned there. And so I, I even if you don't you know think that's persuasive or you think that is uh, you know just a silly thought, I have two other remarks that I think uh, are would show the consistency of this with Sola Scriptura. Um, one is that the tradition here it doesn't specify what it is, and so we don't know much about it um, other than the fact that if you were to not grant the Greek argument I just made, um, then then you would just say, like, well, it's unclear, so it can't establish the parts and parts and view or that there's tradition outside and so on. So it's just it's just ambiguous. So you can't really establish much, and it doesn't defeat Sola Scriptura. Um, another consideration that I want to mention is that, well, it's certainly true that you would want to pass down these traditions, um, and the apostles pass them down uh, to the uh, Thessalonians, we're not the Thessalonians, and we're not in the first century anymore, though. And as I indicated, I think prophecy and infallible teaching has ceased, uh, specifically at 70 AD at the destruction of the temple, um, and because I think that's what Daniel 9, Matthew 24, and 1 Corinthians 13, Ephesians 2.20 teach in conjunction with one another. I think that there, it's a clear message in the New Testament that the prophecy has ceased, and so they can't infallibly pass down things anymore um, you know, speaking infallibly from their offices as an, as an apostle or as a prophet. So since prophecy has ceased, um, then this command no longer, um, I, I would say with tradition, we even apply anymore because we don't have infallible apostles passing down things anymore because, as I said, that has ceased according to the Old and New Testament. So, um, you know, either way, I don't think this verse scratches me at all because I don't think apostles are around anymore. I think prophecy ceased. I think it probably refers to the gospel anyways, and I think it refers to things that are already written down. So I, it's hard for me to see how this could actually justify um, uh, this sort of tradition that's passed on that, you know, you know, thousands of years that we get a, you know, encyclical or a bull that has, you know, new teachings on it. Okay, well, well, I think we're in agreement that, uh, that um, apostolic teaching ceased um at uh at at the death of uh the apostle john um you know so long as um you know tradition about that is correct um but um as far as um um oral statements are concerned um don't wouldn't you say um as a philosopher wouldn't you say that that's more of a more of an epistemological issue in an issue of uh of uh sola scriptura being um being justified based on the fact mm-hmm. that we don't know exactly what the oral statements were um well yeah and so if it's epistemologically inscrutable then it can't defeat my position um so if it's un- it's un- an unclear argument doesn't establish a position i would say um but I, I would say, you know, there's also some ontological thing going on here. Namely, I don't think people have the Holy Spirit to pass on infallible traditions anymore. I don't think the Bible teaches that there's a sort of infallible ability people have to pass on traditions. I don't think that's taught in the Bible. I don't know where it would be taught in the Bible. So I don't think people have this prophetic, or if you don't want to call it prophetic, we can call it something else, mythetic, whatever you want to call it, has this sort of infallible sort of power as an apostle to pass on traditions to ensure uh, that that you know they are as on the same level epistemologically and ontologically as scripture. 
Okay. So uh, so now the uh the canon of scripture um would you say that that is a uh a fallible canon or or is it an infallible canon based on uh the authority of the church? Right, right. Well, I I guess what I would say is I would pick out the scriptures fallibly using my um using my, you know, intellect as, you know, a regenerated um, you know, uh, spirit, uh, regenerated, renewed uh, image bearer of God. So I would say that I would pick out um, those books, um, just like you pick out what church is the correct church. So, mm-hmm. but kind of what I'm getting at is that any question you can ask of the church, you can also ask the Bible and vice versa. So, for instance, you pick out out of all these churches, you say, no, Jerry Maddox is wrong. The set of the Cantus don't have. What, anything going on here? And no, the East Orthodox Church, not not quite. Pick out, okay, this is the right one. Um, and so I too is uh, look at you know what books. I'm like, okay, which one's God's word here? You know, okay, which one is Jesus speaking to me? Well, this is passed on by the church and so on. And I read the pages and I'm like, oh, this is God speaking to me. And there's good reasons and evidence for thinking that. As I would I think you would say, there's good evidence and reasons for thinking that the Roman Catholic Church is is the only infallible one. So. We're basically in the same position, it seems to me, in that I have to select what books fallibly are in the canon, and you have to fallibly select which church is claimed to infallibility is true. And more on that is, suppose you you didn't like that, you know, and you said, no, I I do have infallible knowledge. Well, then I could just do the same thing and say, no, I have this sort of a priori infallible spirit-given knowledge that what books belong in the Bible. You know, God just infallibly would be nice. that ability. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, either way you, you cut the cheese there, I think the Catholic and the Protestant are going to be in pretty similar situations here. Okay, so um, your position then is that um, it is a fallible canon, but um, you believe that there are strong reasons to accept those 27 books as uh, author as as canon in the New Testament, right? Is, well, is what I would say, correct? well, um, yes, and I want it because fallible can be confusing. So yes, it is fallible. But I, you know, I mean, I could be hooked up, you know, in the matrix in the brain of the vat right now. You know, now I fallible sure. know that I'm not in the matrix. So I would say I'm certain. I am certain that God's that, that God has spoken in the books of the Bible, I'm certain, but I don't have this sort of precise philosophical certainty of 100%. I can't be mistaken, this sort of Cartesian certainty about what books belong in the Bible. But I would say I'm certain from a practical standpoint, I am certain that, hey, you know, I'm as certain as these books are God's word as I am that I have a right hand, which is pretty, I think it's pretty good. Um, and so I would say the same is true of the Roman Catholic when he selects which, which church. You know, if he thinks this is the right church, and he could probably claim the same thing I'm claiming right now. So it's not a unique Protestant issue. It's a, I would say, a Catholic and a Protestant thing. So I don't think anybody gets any sort of um, high ground, as it were, here. Okay. Okay. Um, well, let's see here. Um, um, I'm going to ask a question that uh, maybe um, isn't asked isn't asked a whole lot. But uh, I, th- I think it's important. Um, it's not necessarily a, uh, a gotcha moment by sure, any means. Sure, sure. 
Sure. But uh, I'd, I'd like to hear your thoughts on it. In uh, Matthew 23, um, verses 1 through 3, um, it says, uh, Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So practice and observe what they tell you, but do not do what they do, for they preach, but do not practice. Um, is this an example of uh, a tradition that uh, that the Pharisees um, that the Pharisees taught but did not practice, um, or um, is it something that uh, that the Pharisees um, simply simply made up that Jesus completely rejected? Right, right. Well, a few things about that ter- that tax there. It's uh, kind of ambiguous in some points, but um, so let me let me say this: when they're saying Moses seed, so suppose you think that that, that they're reading a scripture, as some people try to argue, then that would be infallible. But suppose it's their teaching, which is you know traditions that are passed uh, from from the scriptures or whatever it is. Um, Jesus is telling them to listen to them, and I have no problems with traditions being passed down. I just wouldn't say they're on the same level as Scripture. That's my only my only claim. So here, in order to get like some sort of argument going that would kind of support Roman Catholicism, it seems to me you have to you have to read infallibility into that text, and I don't think you can get that. So um, it would be like if you know a mom says to her child, "Listen to your father, even though he's a drunken maniac." You know, you know, uh-huh. listen to him, even though you don't don't follow his actions and drink, you know, hit the bottle every night, but listen to him. It's the woman who says that about her husband is not claiming that her husband is infallible, but that he has a general sort of reliability in terms of his authority. And so Jesus is saying here, it would seem to me, that these um, these teachers have a general sort of reliability about their authority, just like a father would, just like a you know a teacher would, a professor would. But they're certainly not infallible. So I, I think the text is not really clear there, and so it's compatible with sola scriptura, in my from my understanding, my vantage point. Okay. So, so the traditions are, are are authoritative, but they're not on the same level as uh, scripture itself. Is, is is that your view? Yeah, just like a father and son relationship. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Uh, I mean, I mean, is is it exactly the same as a father and son relationship? I mean, we're talking about uh, um, the Pharisees, who are uh, you know teachers of of, of God's word. Um, well, I would say that, I mean, it's similar in a lot of respects. There's general reliability with a father teaching his son things. And um, also a father can be a hypocrite but teach his son true things. I mean, obviously I think Jesus is getting at a very important point here. You know, um, just, you know, suppose you were taught mathematics by a child molester. Um, you wouldn't say, well, one plus one doesn't equal two now, you know. You would still say, no, that's still a good teaching that I was taught even though I was taught that by a hypocrite. And so I think Jesus is saying the same thing here, is that there's a general sort of reliability. Now, if it's identical to a father and a son, I don't think I'd want to say it's identical. I mean, certainly there's, there's uh, I think, there's a sufficient uh, enough similarity between the two, I would say. Okay, well, that's that's interesting. That's uh, often an, an argument that I use um, in my debate against uh, atheists. Um, hmm. They refer to... Uh, um, you know the bad things that uh, some religious people do. Um, I refer to uh, the fact that 
<laughs> you know, you wouldn't abandon mathematics or calculus just because, uh, just because, you know, uh, we have, uh, you know, a, you know, a child molester or something like that who teaches mathematics. Um, right. So, um, in any case, I think we're on, the, I think we're on the same page and, in, in, in that respect yeah. at least. Sure. Uh, sure. Nate, definitely. Uh, Real quick, gentlemen. Here, it's about we got about a minute left. Uh, Nate, did you have anything you wanted to add to kind of wrap us up? And then what we'll do is take a quick break and then get back to your question with Doug. Um, did you want to take a minute and close us out on this section? Yeah, um, I'll just take a quick minute here. You know, and I just want to say that it seems to me that um, Catholics and Protestants are really in the same position here. Um, I fallibly picked what books I believe belong in the Bible, and they fallibly pick out which church, you know. Um, Jerry Matisic thinks the set of Acanthus church is correct and that the Roman Catholic Church has erred in contradicting creeds and um, ecumenical councils. So, um, you know, we all have to make our selection here, and we're fallible human beings, but we're generally reliable. Uh, our cognitive faculties mostly produce true beliefs in us, so we can trust ourselves. So we make a fallible selection as to what we think is true and reject, hopefully, who we think is false. So uh, that's kind of what I want to say. All right, folks. Stay with us. We are going to take a quick break, and we will be right back, uh, give the guys a chance to use the restroom or get a drink, and uh, stay with us. We'll be back for hour number two in this dialogue on Sola Scriptura between a Protestant and Catholic. Here's a Renewing Your Mind Minute with Dr. R.C. Sproul. Spiritual rebirth is the work of God. When Paul speaks in Ephesians 2 about being quickened by the Holy Ghost while we're dead in sin and trespasses, he's talking about regeneration, which is a supernatural work. It is a work done from above by the immediate power of God, and it is something that only God can do. You cannot make yourself be reborn any more than Lazarus could have brought himself out of the tomb. Just as you did not do anything for your natural birth except be born, so your rebirth is a matter of the mercy and grace of God. For today's special offer, visit renewingyourmind.org. It's not enough simply to acknowledge the truth mentally. When you read John Calvin, you just find yourself in a, a life that's saturated by the awareness that without the Spirit of God, we can do nothing. Calvin, outside of God's Word, has been the greatest influence in my life. I find the Institutes, they take me into a world where the triune God is center to everything and where the grace of Jesus Christ shapes life. Calvin had a motto that summed up his life my heart I give to you, O God, promptly and sincerely. Calvinism is not sterile and clinical and cold and academic. It pulses with exultant adoration. Adoration that is the overflow of hearts that have been invaded by inexplicable sovereign, saving, redeeming grace. And where these pulse beats are missing, it's not Calvinism that's missing. 
It's Christianity that's missing. The gospel does not leave us where we are with minds that have become entranced or even infatuated by the doctrines of grace. The gospel comes to capture the citadel of our beings and to bring us in wholehearted consecration to the Lord Jesus Christ who redeemed us by his precious blood and who gave himself that we might be reconciled and restored to God. All right, folks, that is Calvin and the Christian Life, a new uh, DVD teaching series from Ligonier Ministries. You can go to Renewing Your Mind uh, website and catch that. Great, great, uh, great series. So we are back in uh, hour number two of our dialogue on Sola Scriptura. Again, join us next week, same time. Uh, we will be doing a show on the New Paul Perspectives. And we'll have our friend Bill Roach with us to kind of walk us through that and uh, be taking your calls. So be sure to tune in for that. All right, gentlemen, uh, we will go ahead and move into the second hour now. And uh, Nathan, you have about 15 minutes to ask your question to Doug. Thank you, Devin. Um, And this second question I'm going to ask, I'm not asking it to be uh, adversarial or try to trap you or anything like that. That's not um, my my kind of my intention. But it's you know I I believe that the scriptures alone are the only it's it's that's the only thing that God has revealed to us in special revelation. Um, so you know to that um, you know even if all my texts that I gave you in my opening statement were to completely fall flat and they don't prove sola scriptura, I would still not be a Roman Catholic. Um, I and and uh, I would say that I would hold to a weaker form of sola scriptura or scripture alone, which is that scripture is the only special revelation that we know of because the Eastern Orthodox Church, I believe, teaches an incoherent view of God. Sure. Uh, I think the Roman Catholic sure. Church contradicts itself. Um, and I think Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, and so on, I think there's all difficulties there. So given a process of elimination, I would just hold the claim that scripture alone is the only uh, revelation from God that I know of, even if those verses were to fail. So this is kind of the spirit of the question I'm going to ask. It's a difficulty with the Roman Catholic uh, uh, pronouncements that claim to be infallible. So that was a lot of setup. Here's my question. I'm sorry about that. Uh, so in paragraph 102 in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, it reads the following. Through all the words of sacred scripture, God speaks only one single word, his one utterance in whom he expresses himself completely. He expresses himself completely. And in paragraph 120 of the Catechism, we read the following. This complete list it's complete list is called the Canon of Scripture. It includes 46 books for the Old Testament, uh, 45 if we count Jeremiah and Lamentations as well, and 27 for the New. So it sounds like here that the written word of God is fully contained in the Old and New Testament according to the Roman Catholic Catechism, uh, or, sorry, the Catechism of the Catholic Church, whatever. Sure. <laughs> um, the concern I have is that the doctrines and dogmas enunciated by the Roman Catholic Church do not come in a purely oral form. Rather, they are set forth in various written documents, such as papal encyclicals, papal bulls, 
uh, canons of the ecumenical councils. So these documents I just mentioned, would you would you say that they are the word of God as well? Uh, you mean, the uh, ecumenical councils, you mean? Yeah, people bold. As, as the word of God. I, um, I, I'd say that they're authoritative. I, I wouldn't necessarily call them the word of God. Um, the word of God um, ceased with um, the death of the uh, the last apostle, which, uh, which was John. Um, but... Um, as far as authority goes, um, that continued um, as far as interpretation um, of Scripture and tradition. That continued with, uh, say, like the Council of Nicaea, um, which uh, which Protestants generally accept. Um, um, but it would also continue with uh, the Vatican Council's um, and uh, all of the other ecumenical councils. Um, Eastern Orthodox accept uh, seven of the ecumenical councils. Um, and uh, depending on the Protestant um, view, they accept maybe three, maybe four of the ecumenical councils, at least their findings. So I'd say that they're authoritative, but I wouldn't call them the Word of God. Would you call them Revelation? Revelation, I, I think, is is just another is really just another term for word of God. Um, revelation. So they revelation. Is, I'm sorry. So they wouldn't be revelation, okay? No, no, I, I wouldn't call them revelation. Okay, um, so you don't agree with Father uh, Peter Stravinskis when he says. Sacred tradition is the unwritten or oral word of God, word to his prophets and apostles, received under divine inspiration and faithfully transmitted to the church under the same guidance. You would disagree with that statement, I'm assuming, right? Well, I, I, I do think that they're, that they're led by the Holy Spirit. Um, so I, I agree with Father Stravinskis, uh, Father Peter Stravinskis, on that issue. I, I just um, I, does he refer to? Uh, I, I didn't hear um, all of that. Did he? Does he refer to uh, the ecumenical councils as the Word of God or as Revelation? Yeah. Well, assuming the the ecumenical councils are the oral Word of God um, written down, then he would say the oral record of God's Word. So yeah, he would say that they're God's word. Okay, well, if if, if in fact he says that um, um, priests priests of course are not infallible, um, um, ecumenical councils are, um, I would say, but uh, I, I don't necessarily agree with what every Catholic has to say. Okay, okay. Um, now, when I read paragraph 79 of the Roman Catholic Catechism, which says, and I get, get this idea that it's, you know, communication through the Holy Spirit, um, I get this idea that it's God's word when you, when you read uh, paragraph 79. The Father's self-communication made through his word in the Holy Spirit remains present and active in the church. God, who mm -hmm. spoke in the past, continues to converse continues, so he spoke in the past, obviously if he spoke in the past with his word, continues to converse with the spouse of his beloved son and the Holy Spirit, through whom the living voice, is a voice of the gospel, rings out in the church, and through her in the world, 
leads believers to full truth and makes the word of Christ dwell in them richly. So it it seems like that's saying, I mean, just straight up, that that's saying that, that God continues to speak to his church and he continues to converse um, and it calls it the word of Christ. Um, so he continues to do this. So it seems like that word of God continues according to that section of the catechism. Well, um, Jesus does say that he will be with us till the, uh, till the end of the age. Um, so I, I do think that, uh, God continues to speak through, um, speak through the church. Um, sorry, I'm, uh, filling up my, uh, filling up my water here. Um, he does uh, continue to speak through through us, but it's it's not a matter of new revelation. It's a matter of uh, interpretation of what has already been revealed. Yeah, well, it's it, I guess I see what you're saying. Um, I just when it says living voice and continues to converse, that sounds like you know like he's speaking words to you. Continuing, I'm conversing with you right now. We continue to converse. And I'm speaking words to you. And then at the very end of that 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 paragraph seventy nine, it, it says the word of Christ. So obviously Christ is God, and that's His word. So sure. I just don't know how to resolve this contradiction in my mind because it seems like this section is somewhat clearly teaching that this is God's word, but yet it's and obviously we know that through the, the encyclicals and the ecumenical councils, and they're written down. But yet it says also that the that, that the word of God is exhausted. In um, in scripture, so I, I just can't. I have such intellectual difficulty with trying to understand how this could be made coherent. I mean, just I'm just being honest with you. I, you know, I hope I'm not coming across. No, no, it's, to that's, you. that's not a problem at all. Um, um, it's important to keep in mind that um, suppose that uh, Catholicism is wrong. Um, that wouldn't uh, automatically mean that Sola Scriptura is uh is correct um it could be that uh eastern orthodoxy is correct it could be um that, you know some other some other view is correct um but uh no i i i don't i i just don't see i just don't see the uh continuation of of christ speaking to us as being somehow a new revelation, um, you might look at someone like Joan of Arc, for example. Um, I don't know what you think of her, but um, there there was nothing new um, in her in her visions um, that would be um, authoritative for the church. Um, you know, there was nothing new about any of the other saints who, um, who had visions, um, it, it, all of the, um, all of the content of Revelation, um, you know, it, it was, it, it would all, it all ended in, in the first century. And, mm-hmm. uh, I, I just don't see, um, where the council um, contradicts any of that. Well, yeah, I guess if Jesus continues to speak to us and Jesus is speaking infallibly, that's his infallible word, and so his infallible word continues. Um, so I guess that's kind of where I'm getting at. But dreams and dreams would be considered a form of prophecy, by the way, 
prophets are described as a dreamer of dreams. And in Deuteronomy 18, it says that um, God infallibly speaks through people or God speaks through his spirit. He puts their word in his mouth. And that's what prophecy is in Deuteronomy 18, God putting his word in his mouth. And, and it, you know, preeminently referring to Christ and all the other prophets. Um, so if, 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 you know, if God is, in, you know, infallibly communicating um, to uh, his people if through written documents, or through verbal pronouncements, that would seem to be by Deuteronomy 18's definition, and uh, especially by Second Peter 1's definition of the uh, the spirit carrying around prophets, um, not by man's will but by God's will. That would seem to be the, what the definition of prophecy is, and so that's why I, I just have difficulty with this. And then I I, I guess. You know, I find it also kind of counterintuitive that we're continuing to converse right now, and you're speaking to words I'm giving to you right now. Uh, I don't know how you can converse without words um, or some form of symbols or something like this. Um, so when it says Christ continues to converse, and it actually says at the end of the catechism that it's Christ's word dwelling in you for all richness or richly, I, you know, that sounds like, you see what I mean? That kind of sounds like God's word uh, in tradition, and I, I, I guess I, I, I'm having trouble wrapping my mind around that. I don't know. Maybe maybe I'm not explaining myself well there, but that's kind of what I'm what I'm getting at. Um, any thoughts on that? Well, I, I think we might just have to agree to disagree on that. Um, um, you might see it that way. That way. Um, I, I I just don't see. Um, the speaking of the word as necessarily um, an indication of any type of new revelation. Um, there's also um, a view in Catholicism. I don't personally hold to it, but there is um, the view that um, Scripture is materially sufficient, um, but it's not um, formally sufficient. Um, so it, it, it's so the church is required to interpret scripture, um, but but again, that's not a view that that I hold to, so I, I wouldn't necessarily defend that one. Yeah, yeah, I guess I want to. You, you just said that Christ's words, you know, doesn't entail revelation. Well, even throughout the term revelation, it says that God's word is exhausted um, in the Bible. So. Um, I guess how can uh, the catechism be made consistent with that statement? Even you just grant that it's Christ's word and the uh, councils and so on. So if that's Christ's word and the catechism says um, that Christ's word is exhausted in the scriptures of the Old New Testament, then I don't know how they could be, you know, not be God's word uh, at that point and, and, and how that makes it coherent because if it's exhausted in the Old New Testament, and, of course, there can be no other words of God if they're exhausted there. Um, so I guess, you know, if you grant that they're Christ's words, and these are continuing traditions that are in partly revealed through the church, then um, I don't know how you could agree with the statement in the Catechism that God's word, Christ's word, is exhausted, the Old and New Testament canon. Well, well I, think, I think that it is exhausted in the Old and New Testament. It, it's just that... It's a matter of interpreting both scripture and tradition, which which ended in the at the end of the first century. It's not that that there's anything new. Um, there's no new tradition 
Um, it's just that uh, the church continues to interpret. Um, it, um, and there's development of scripture. There, or I mean, I'm sorry, there's development of doctrine, but that's not the same as um, any new doctrine. Um, it, it's just that um, it's just that the, the church continues to interpret the Word of God from the Old and New Testaments, including both Scripture and tradition. Oh, okay. Yeah, I guess I want to. Uh, we're probably closing on time here, Devin. You can I just have one more point, and then we can go on. Yeah, that um, is that is fine. Yep. Okay. Well, then let me just kind of close this section off here and basically kind of recount some of the discussions. And you you lobbed uh, a pretty interesting point that I kind of want to respond to, and then we'll close here. So uh, basically you said, well, even if this is true and Catholicism is not true, um, you know what? Well, it doesn't prove sola scriptura. And to that I say, well, I think the Eastern Orthodox conception of God is uh, incoherent. They say you can't know anything about God, but course, you know one thing about God, namely, you can't know anything about him. So that, I think there's some problems there of coherence. Um, obviously, Mormons, um, I think it's in, inconsistent with perfect being theology. I think the same is true of Jehovah's Witnesses and Islam. So all of these religions, as my point, have, I think, severe difficulties with them and are, and are massively incoherent. Um, and so if all I got... If all I got is all these other religions and different perspectives are all kind of ruled out and they all uh, meet, they all fail to meet the test of logic and reason, which the Bible encourages us, um, Paul does, to test everything, that, and that's the good way of doing things. So they all fail to meet that test. It's only Scripture. The Scripture is all I'm going to go by. So though it may not fit that stronger definition of sola scriptura, I give it the very uh, in my in my opening statement. It does accord with the general spirit of sola scriptura. And even if those texts I gave were to not be successful, I would still hold the sola scriptura on the basis of what I just said. Okay, um, Doug, go ahead, and I guess we'll move on to your question for Nathaniel. Uh, let's see. Uh... Any questions? Um, I think I think I pretty much exhausted uh, most of my questions here. Um, um, I could ask some uh, tangential uh, questions. Um, let's see. Um, as as far as the real presence, for example, is concerned, yeah. um, um, the Presbyterian view, as I understand it is that uh, Christ is spiritually present in the Eucharist. Um, he is not, uh, it's not transubstantiation, it's not the Eastern Orthodox view, but it's also right. not purely a uh, symbolic view either. Jesus is right. uh, spiritually present as opposed to, uh, so like the Baptist view that uh that holds that uh Jesus is uh it's merely a uh, a symbol in the Eucharist. Is is that correct? Yeah, well I guess what I'd want to say is that I think that's basically correct. But what I mean by real presence is that Jesus is spiritually present in the Lord's Supper, um and uh, gives us the grace that's given in the gospel as an instrument of grace and yeah we, we receive Christ spiritually in the Lord's Supper. Um and I would just use for that very clearly First um, Corinthians uh, 10 that parallels people who give sacrifices 
idolatrous, idol-like sacrifices. They're communing with demons. But if you take the Lord's Supper, you're communing uh, with Jesus Christ. And so I take that text to be, you know, I don't think demons are physical. I mean, they're called spirits. So I don't take my communion with Jesus and his presence to be physical. I take it to be spiritual as taught in 1 Corinthians 10. 1 Corinthians 10, you said? Yeah, that's right, yeah. Okay, 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 I got you. Um, so um, this is a view that uh, you would hold um, is, uh, is uh, biblically based and uh, not um, solely um, held by tradition. Yeah, I would say it's, it's, it can be derived from the Bible, and I think uh, clearly okay. so. Okay, okay, I got you. Um, let's see here. Um, now, you know, uh, feel free. Oh, the, sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, no, no, it's okay. I was, um, uh, I'm looking at the catechism of, uh, the Catholic Church. Um, their view, the, the view of tradition, um, what it says is the, uh, the tradition here in question comes from, the apostles and hands on what they received from Jesus' teaching and uh, an example of what they learned from the Holy Spirit. The first generation of Christians did not yet have a written New Testament, and the New Testament itself demonstrates the process of living tradition. Um, so um, I'm, I'm looking back at your earlier question about... Um, the ecumenical council and uh the idea that uh they're continuing um they're continuing uh like new traditions for example um when in fact catechism um it says right here that uh the traditions come directly from the apostles and what they received mm-hmm. from Jesus um, right. Is, 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 do you, do you find that there's any conflict there? Um, well, in in the catechism, if it if it says that it is Christ's word uh, tradition, and if it's written down, then I would still find a conflict between um, that and the section I cited where it says that the word of God is exhausted um, in the Old and New Testament. Um, that would contradict because it's not exhausted because namely there's tradition. Um, which is the word of Christ and is given the Holy Spirit and is conversant. So those sounds like uh, the word of God is not uh, exhausted in the Old and New Testament, which would be a contradiction, it seems to me. Okay, but the uh, uh, but the canon of Scripture is is a tradition, correct? Um, no, I would I would say that we, you know, select um, the Bible. Uh, you know, looking at it using our reason and our intellect and uh, reading it and knowing that it's self-authenticating. Um, so I would say that the criteria is taught in the Bible in John 10 that uh, his sheep will hear his voice. Um, and so we, we see the voice of Christ in Scripture. And so we just say, oh, it's properly basic or what have you, that this is God speaking to us. And so we know it. And so uh, we have a uh, infallible criteria given to us by which we can determine which belong in the canon. So I wouldn't say um, that's a tradition, but that's authorized by Scripture itself. Okay. Now, now when, um, uh, l- let's take um, 
letters that neither of us accepts, like the uh, Gospel of Thomas, um, right. the uh, Epistle of Barnabas, um, huh? the uh, uh, Shepherd of uh, Hermas. Um, mm-hmm. The latter two we uh, we we would revere, but um, we wouldn't consider scripture. Um, what determines why why they're not scripture, even though even though they have that authoritative claim within them? Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you asked. Um, so I would say that there's a number of um, ways we can determine the canon. So one of them would be this properly basic, this sort of self-evident, self-testing sort of belief, foundational belief that is a result of my cognitive faculties producing mostly true belief. So that would be like the self-attesting way. But there are, I think, three ways you can know what books belong in the canon. And so for that way, it would say, well, you know, when I read the Gospel of Thomas, I don't have that sort of belief formation, right? would be the way they respond to that. And But I read the Gospel of John, I do see, hear Jesus' voice in the Gospel of John, but I don't hear it reading the Gospel of Thomas. That's one way. The second way um, is to use a rational way of what books belong in the canon. And this way, I would also say, is authenticated by Scripture, because the, the Scripture gives us another criteria, to test everything, to judge for ourselves. First Thessalonians 5.21 says to test everything. First uh, Corinthians 10.15 says to judge for yourself. Luke 12, 57, so the judge for yourself what is right. So we are to reason and use our mind to determine what books belong. And so when we, when we see this, we have, I want to develop a reasonable criteria by which we can say these books are in and these books are out. And this criteria goes like this. It has to be written by the uh, apostolic circle or uh, one of the apostles and their associates. It has to be consistent with previous revelation, which the Gospel of Thomas, I read it, is not it has to be written in the first century, which I don't think the Gospel of Thomas is, and I think it has to be early enough to where we can show this, and I don't think that's the case with the Gospel of Thomas. Right, um, second, it, second century A.D. Um, yeah, yeah, uh, right. And, and then so, also it mean, presents itself as Scripture, it, and then it, it, has, um, it has some acceptance in the Church. So I think those five rational criteria would be uh, part of the reason why I'd eliminate the books you mentioned. Okay. Um, so would you say um, it, it almost sounds like a uh, presuppositionalist position. Um, uh, are, are you saying that these um, 27 books in the New Testament are the word of God based on the impossibility of the contrary? Um, no. I, well, I'm a presuppositionalist, but I'm a modified one. Um, I would Okay. I would say the transcendental arguments work and that the best form of arguments, but I do reject, as it stands, the impossibility of the contrary. Um, you know, Christianity is that, but I would say the existence of God is the impossibility of the contrary. So I, I, I don't. I'm a presuppositionalist of sorts, but uh, that that would be uh, the, the way I would go about it is to say, you know, we use these arguments, transcendental arguments, and other arguments for God's existence, and we use the resurrection evidence. Um, and we use perfect being theology, and we bring all those things together, I think we can basically see what has the best historical evidence. And when we do that, I think we could get the New Testament canon. Um, so, and we get Christianity, basically. So that would be kind of my uh, apologetic methodology. Okay, so um, it's kind of a combination of uh, presuppositionalism with uh, classical apologetics. Yeah, that's right. And I would use evidence and reason to establish the canon and that sort of thing. And I would say the Bible authorizes um, that sort of 
activity of using reason and evidence and examining things yourself and, you know, First Peter 3.15, always giving, you know, a reason and defense for what you hold and so on. Sure. Those sort of concepts in Second uh, Corinthians 10, destroying arguments. And so the, the Bible, I think, authorizes reason, evidence, and testing things. And so when we put things through this testing machine and we use the earliest historical evidence and so on, we can see that the uh, books uh, in the New Testament belong in there. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, well, um, I think I'm finished with my questions. Um, if, uh, if you have any questions for me, um, you're welcome to. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I guess we'll just move my question, uh, part. Is that right? Yeah. Yep. Go, go right ahead. We've got about 30 minutes left. So, um, you guys, I mean, if you're wanting to, to go into other topics or whatever, feel free and just kind of have Great. a conversation. Great. Well, that's excellent, Devin. Um, okay. Well, I guess I'm going to just kind of just start asking you questions. We'll just kind of go from there. Is that okay with you, Doug? Uh, yeah, sure. Okay, bud. Um, so just really quick, just so I understand your view, would you say that you, when, you, when you picked out the Roman Catholic Church as the right one, would you say that you, you infallibly know that the Roman Catholic Church is true, or would you say that you fallibly know that it's true? Um from an epistemological perspective it's fallible um i i think there's a uh, a strong difference between uh what is uh known uh that's epistemology and then there's ontology um on, ontologically um i would say that the church is infallible but um my knowledge um my knowledge of a lot of things um, not just of the infallibility of the Catholic Church, um, their dogmas, but, uh, you know, a lot of things. I mean, uh, I have fallible knowledge of, uh, of physics, for example. Um, I have fallible knowledge of uh, um, how the United States government works, um, uh, if it works at all. So, um you know, uh, that that's the distinction that I would make. Okay. Well, that's good. I appreciate you clarifying that for me. Um, well, I have a bigger question, so I'm just going to go to this big question, and we might stay on this for a while and kind of discuss it. Um, and, you know, this goes back to the general spirit of the previous question I asked, um, my second question. This is my third question. So um, the Catechism of the Catholic Church in uh, paragraph 847 quotes from the Second Vatican Council saying, those who, through no fault of their own, do not know the gospel of Christ or his church, but who nevertheless seek God with a sincere heart and moved by grace, try in their actions to do his will as they know it through the dictates of their conscience. These two may achieve eternal salvation. So this passage here, I think, teaches I think, clearly that there is, sal there is salvation apart from the Roman Catholic Church, or without even knowing the Catholic Church exists at all, for that matter. I, I think there's some difficulty here when we read the last paragraph of the document from the Council of Florence, known as Cante Domino, promulgated by uh, Pope Eugene IV in 1441, and it reads as follows. It, that is, the Church firmly believes, professes, and proclaims that those not living within the Catholic Church, not only pagans, but Jews and heretics and schismatics, cannot become participants in eternal life, but will depart into the everlasting fire 
which is paired by uh, the devil and his angels, Matthew twenty five forty one cited there. Unless before the end of life the same have been added to the flock, and the unity of the ecclesiastical body is so strong that those that only those remaining in it in the church are the sacraments of the church of benefit for salvation, and do fastings, almsgivings, almsgiving, excuse me, and other functions of piety, the exercises of Christian service produce the eternal reward, and that no one, whatever almsgiving he has practiced, even if he has shed blood for the name of Christ, can be saved unless he has remained in the bosom and unity of the Catholic Church. So just kind of a recap of this. There seems to be a saying that, that if you are a Jew or a pagan who lives a godly life through almsgiving, or even if you shed the, uh, for Christ, shed blood for Christ, you can't be saved unless you live within the confines of the Roman Catholic Church and participate in its sacraments. Um, and the previous one seems to say that, hey, you, know, you don't even know about the church, you know, um, uh, you know, and, and you can be saved as long as you live a, a good life. Um, do you see a problem with this? Um, because it does appear to me that these can- councils here, um, or the council with the catechism, uh, seem to be in contradiction. Well, this is certainly a good question, um, and it's one that I've asked myself at times as well, um, what um, the way that I would reconcile the two is that um, if one knows that the Catholic Church is mm. the church that Christ founded and they nevertheless reject it, then they're in a the state of mortal sin. Um, mm-hmm. But at the same time, I, w- I would point to someone like Job, um, for example, um, you know, certainly, um, certainly a Gentile. He wasn't a Jew, um, he, but um, he still followed. He still followed God as best he could. Um, so, you know, had so I, I would say that had he known that, well, well, of course, this is before the Catholic Church existed, but had right. he known that. Um, that um salvation comes from the Abrahamic God, then um he would have accepted it. And so that's why that's why he was saved. Um so I, I don't I don't see any conflict between the two, even though um at first glance there may appear to be a conflict. Um so yeah. uh um does does that make sense? Yeah, it does. I guess in my mind, so it says Jews. Um, it doesn't specify in um, the Council of Florence um, whether what these Jews know or don't know. It just says, but also Jews and heretics, pagans. Just it just lists them, regardless of whether that they know or don't know. It says that hey, these these if you practice Jewish faith here, um, you're going to hell. Um, and so. The other one says that quite the opposite. You know, you could not even know about the Roman Catholic Church, and you could be a Jew, um, and you know, you can go to heaven um, if you just be a good, good little boy or girl kind of thing. Um, so, you know, uh, it seems like that's in conflict there because it just says Jews. So, and it says pagans too. Um, so, presumably, there are pagans that don't know about the Roman Catholic Church, but here it says of these pagans, just pagans in general, Jews in general, 
that, you know, you're going to hell um, because they don't have the Roman Catholic Church. Well, I mean, the uh, the lack of the lack of a teaching um, in, in a council doesn't necessarily mean that doesn't necessarily mean that the teaching isn't there. It just means that it's not mentioned. Um, this is where development of doctrine comes in. Um, you know, um, St. Augustine, for example, I mean, he, he, he lived way before the Council of Florence, um, and he explained that, uh, those who don't know Christ, but nevertheless, um, live the kind of life as if, um, they would know Christ had they known about Christ, um, they're still part of the Catholic Church, in a spiritual sense, um, so so it, it's still a teaching. It's still a teaching of the church, even though it's not explicitly mentioned um, in, in in an ecumenical council, and 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 it is and it is mentioned in in uh, subsequent councils as well. Right. Um, well, I guess so. You think that Jews then can go to heaven, right? I, I, yeah, I think it's possible. Um, um, I, I, I think that if if they if uh, if they know about Christ and they know the truth about Christ and they reject Christ just like anybody, um, then uh, you know no, none of those people would would go to heaven. Um, I, I know that's harsh. Um, Sure, but, sure. Uh, what, what, what about pagans? Let's do pagans. If they don't, if they don't, you know, so you know, pagan doesn't reject the Catholic Church. He's ignorant of it. So pagans and Jews, uh, they can go to heaven. It's possible. Um, I'd like to meet Aristotle in heaven, um, but uh, you know, I, I I have no knowledge of uh, of whether or not uh, of whether or not. Uh, they they are in heaven, uh, but I think it's possible um, for them to go to heaven um, if if in fact uh, they would accept Christ had they known about Him. But that's not something that we are capable of knowing about. Right, right. Um, so it says here not only pagans but Jews and heretics and schismatics. Um, you know, so cannot be become participants in eternal life, but will depart into the everlasting fire, which is prepared for the devil and his angels. So here, it just says p- pagans and Jews, so they're different. Pagans are different. Jews are different. Uh, heretics are different. Schismatics are different. Um, so they're, they're all, so it's not, you know, referring to, to, you know, Jews that are schismatics. They're just saying Jews in general and pagans in general and schismatics in general. That's like the clear kind of reading of, of the text. And it says these cannot be participants in eternal life. And I guess, like, just reading this, I just, it's, it's kind of rough because, like, it looks like a contradiction. It really does when you're just reading it. Um, it, it, it it's very difficult. And so this is why someone like myself and, by the way, ex-Roman Catholic apologist Gary Maticic, who has started, you know, rejects Vatican II and so on and presented the Cantus religion, um, which is a break-off from Catholicism, have broken away precisely because of these texts. These texts have so shook the faith of Roman Catholics 
that they leave the Catholic Church and, start, and you know, say that the that the Pope is a false teacher and the seat is vacant, uh-huh. and uh, they hold the study of the Kentus tradition. So I guess when they read that, and I read, and they, you know, they obviously want Catholicism to be true. It's it's sort of a sort of rough. You see what I'm saying? It's when you read it, like it's sort of it seems like a contradiction. I guess is kind of what I'm getting. At. Well, well, it, it's important to understand that uh, that heretics are those who have have heard the truth of the gospel, um, but nevertheless reject it. Um, so um, I, I I wouldn't I mean I don't know who is a heretic and who's not, um, but they wouldn't be included among those who um, are Jews and pagans who are nevertheless um, who are nevertheless saved. Um, but uh, let's see, um, you mentioned that uh, there there were certain passages that. Uh, Caused uh, uh, Catholics to to leave the faith. Is, is, is that correct? Oh, this is the one. This is it right here. Oh, you are. This, this, oh, okay. No, 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 no. I'm sorry, that was unclear. This, this these these um, citations from um, from these councils that conflict and from the catechism that conflicts. This is what caused you know uh, Jerry Matitix and other like Peter Diamond, for instance, to uh, be a part of the set of the Cantus. This is what's oh, yeah. the Plinaroff group. Yeah. Yeah. Matitix, Matitix, nice guy. Um, I've listened to a lot of his debates with uh, James White. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I, I no longer consider him a Catholic. Um, he... Uh, I forget the term, but uh, he uh, he still considers himself a Catholic, but uh, he rejects uh, the Second Vatican Council, um, and so uh, he he wouldn't be uh, considered a Catholic by um, the Catholic Church's standards. Right, which is kind of interesting because he doesn't think you're a Catholic either. It's kind of it's kind of interesting how that works, but. Um, Okay, so I, I guess, you know, I want to change the subject here. We're getting towards the end and everything. We're closing this up. I, I want to I know your thoughts on 1 Corinthians 4, 6. I mean, that seems like a pretty straightforward teaching on sola scriptura in the Bible. Don't go beyond scripture. I mean, it, it's sort of clear to me. I, I guess, how would you understand that text? Let's see, 1 Corinthians 4, 6. Let me just go ahead and look that up because I, I I know what I know what passage you're talking about. It's uh, don't yeah. go beyond what is written. Mm-hmm. Correct. Okay. Um. Let's see. Now he. Uh, Paul says. Um, let's look. Go ahead and look at this in context. Um. He says that. Uh, I've applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, so that you may learn from us not to go beyond what is written. Now, he explains exactly what he means by uh, do not go beyond what is written. He says, so that you may learn from us not to go beyond Mm -hmm. what is written, so that none of you will be inflated with pride in favor of one person over against another, who confers 
distinction upon you what do you possess that you have not received now this is where he starts explaining exactly what he's talking about he's saying do not go beyond what is written in respect to um in respect to pride and he continues by saying but if you have received it why are you boasting as if you did not receive it you are already satisfied you have already grown rich you have become kings without us Indeed, I wish that you had become kings so that we might also become kings with you. So I, I, I don't see this as a general statement. I think that he is, I think that Paul is talking about something very specific um, and not something that uh, is, is, is general. He, he's not saying that um, do not go beyond what is written as a uh, as a statement about scripture in general, he's saying that uh, you know you're not supposed to be inflated with pride. Uh, he goes on to explain exactly what he means. So, um, so I I don't see this as a passage. I I think I think that this is probably the strongest passage um in favor of sola scriptura but i don't think that it actually does support it well, okay that's good so it sounds like to me that you think the greek word graphitai is what most commentators and what the majority usage is that greek word there refers to uh scripture you're granting that yes or no i'm sorry what what passage uh we're saying or, or what word? That greek word is graphitai do, do, do you think that's from reference to scripture there uh, was, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm not all that familiar with Greek. Um, oh, which yeah, word so, so, that so the, the English word written, um, that, uh-huh. that, that word is, 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 is a gloss or a translation from the Greek word graphitai, and that word in Greek means scripture. So are you saying that written there is not in reference to the scriptures, or is it in reference to the scriptures? I, I, I'd have to look that up. Um, to be honest with you, I, I, I don't know. Um, right, so, uh, right. So, okay, okay, yeah, okay. So, I guess I'm thinking here, and so that Greek word, if you look it up, it, it occurs over three times in Paul's writings, and every time it's used, it means scripture. So it's saying, don't go beyond scripture. Now, I don't want to take it to mean scripture in the broad sense. Don't go beyond the scriptures. But if it means in the narrow sense, like the Old Testament, which some Roman Catholic apologists say, or specific teaching then that would be seem to be, make the Bible contradictory. And what I mean by that is that if it's saying don't go beyond these small subset of teachings or don't go beyond the Old Testament, whichever specific instance you're thinking of, then that would mean that we're not to read the rest of the Bible and not to follow, only, we're only not to go beyond those set of teachings. But I think the only way it could be taken is in the broadest sense possible to mean don't go beyond Scripture in general. Because if we specify certain parts of Scripture, then we can only read those parts and not go to anything else. And so that, I think, is a difficulty. And to the context, contextual points you brought up, uh, if one follows the scriptures and submits themselves to that, the scriptures, um, then one, you know, gets humility because I think it teaches the gospel, uh, which I think produces humility. Um, and so if one well, sticks well, to the scriptures, certainly. yeah. So I, I, I think that the context can be made sense out of that. I think it makes uh, most sense in terms of it not being a, a contradiction. Okay, at, at at the most, um, if you're correct, and I'll take your word for it, 
Um, at the most, I think that that would indicate uh, the material sufficiency of Scripture, but not the formal sufficiency of Scripture. Um, um, I, I think that the church is uh, is necessary to interpret um, what uh, what Scripture means. Um, and, uh, you know, we're told by, uh, I think, Peter um, that uh, Scripture is not a matter of private interpretation. Um, so, uh, you know, we're, we are, we're told, we're commanded to, you know, the church is the foundation. Um, I, I'm sorry, I forget the passage exactly. The church is the... Uh, the foundation of uh ah, let me look it up. Oh no, I'll, Sorry I, about I, this. I can just read, I can, first Timothy three fifteen, household of God, which is the church is the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. So yeah, I mean that passage teaches that, yeah. Right, right, the pillar and foundation of truth. Hmm. Yeah, so I guess thinking here for a second, um so so if you're saying that there's other texts that would say that it authorizes an infallible church, and so you're not going beyond Scripture if the Scriptures themselves authorize an infallible church. I, I haven't seen anything like that in this discussion. I haven't seen any, any arguments to the effect this is an infallible church, and it continues on, and, and it has supremacy over the Scriptures. In fact, I mean, just the opposite and with Paul in Acts 17 um, and with the uh, the Bereans. They were checking out what Paul said on the basis of Scripture. And so they were called noble for such an action. And so it seems to me that when you read it, it has the highest authority, and it seems that even you would say it's the Word of God and the traditions are uh, not the Word of God. And so even on, uh, it seems to me, your own view, you'd want to, it seems intuitive at least from my vantage point, subject um, the traditions to the Word of God, the Bible, because they're not the Word of God, the Bible is. And uh, and that's kind of what we see with the Bereans in Acts 17, is they subjected Paul's teachings to the Word of God. So I think taken together, it really you know doesn't do much. But you know the foundation pillar of truth, it doesn't say that the the, the, the church is infallible. It just says it's true, and I I think the church generally is true, um, and produces true beliefs and so on. But I don't think it's infallible. I don't think you can get that from any text in the New Testament. Okay, well, I mean, I mean, um, the Bereans, um, what they were looking at was the Old Testament, um, mm-hmm. and uh, that's what caused them to become Christians. Um, the uh, the church, um, they they hadn't yet belonged to the church, um, and uh, it was the church. I mean, the very first council of the church was uh, Council of Jerusalem. Um, mm-hmm. Which uh, is is taken as infallible. Um, I would assume that you would agree with that at least. Um, maybe yeah. not some of the other councils, but uh, since it's in uh, the Book of Acts, um, I, I would assume that you would agree with that. Yeah. Um, but uh, no, I, I think that, that I think that there are good reasons to believe the church um is infallible um we we disagree on um you know peter being um the rock peter um giving the keys to the kingdom of heaven and so forth um but uh you know disagreement doesn't necessarily mean that uh that uh, there aren't any good reasons to believe that 
that the church is infallible or that the church's um, dogmatic teachings are infallible. Um, so I, I I wouldn't necessarily say that uh, that there there are no that there are no teachings about the church that uh, give it the authority to interpret scripture. And 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 by the way, I, it's it's not that the it's not that the church has um, authority over scripture by any means. It, it's just that the church has authority to interpret scripture. Um, I want to make that clear that you know yeah. scripture scripture is scripture is you know the authority um whether it's material sufficiency or formal sufficiency um the church the church's job is merely to interpret it's not to it's not to have authority over scripture at all. Yeah, I I understand that and you know to the Acts Jerusalem Council that was when the infallible apostles were around, which takes us back to another discussion where prophecy, no more prophets and no more apostles anymore, and the criteria of being seeing the risen Jesus. So I would take that counsel to be infallible, but uh, not not the others. But we're almost out of time, Devin. Do you want quick closing statements? Yeah, that works. Uh, we've got about uh, two or three minutes, so I want to take a minute and give us a close, and then Doug um, will let you give us a close, and uh, that'll be it. Okay, great. Thank you. Well, this has been a great discussion, fascinating discussion with my friend Doug, and uh, it's a pleasure talking to you, my friend. And I guess my concern here is that the Roman Catholic Church it makes void of the Word of God. And what I mean there is the gospel. Uh, in Romans 4, 5, it's very clear that God justifies the ungodly. He declares righteous uh, ungodly sinners. And the Roman Catholic Church denies that truth, and that is the very heart of the gospel. And so that's why I'm personally so passionate and convicted about Sola Scriptura. Thank you. Doug, go ahead and take uh, 45 seconds or a minute and wrap us up. 45 seconds, that's all. Okay. Let's see if I can uh let's see if I can uh go ahead and uh do this real quick. Um well, Nathan, it's great. Um it was great uh talking with you and uh meeting with you. Um Devin, thanks uh for inviting me. Um uh basically um uh we we could talk a lot about uh Catholicism, a lot about uh Catholic doctrine, but really the issue is the Protestant doctrine of Sola Scriptura. Um um even if um all of you know the Catholic distinctives were false, uh that doesn't automatically mean that um you know, ipso facto that Sola Scriptura is true. Um, I think that the burden of proof is on uh, the Protestant or the Evangelical. I, I don't know what you prefer to be called. Um, but uh, I, I think that uh, a case needs to be made uh, in favor of Sola Scriptura and not in favor of any Catholic doctrine. And um, so uh, that's what I would close with. Um, and uh, thank you guys um, for a uh, lively discussion. All right, thank you. All right, gentlemen, appreciate you both coming on. Uh, next week, folks, again, we will be having uh, our friend Bill Roach on, and he's a student at Southeastern Baptist Seminary. We'll be looking at the new Paul perspective and some of the issues with that. And so uh, we'll be taking some calls, and I uh, look forward to talking to you guys. Thanks again, Doug. Thanks again, Nate. Both of you guys did a great job. And, uh, 
you know, folks, theology does does matter. These issues do matter. That's why we do it. We don't uh, do these debates to be contentious or, or to cause division, uh, but, you know, truth divides. And so um, I think we try and model uh, some of the best speakers, those who hold to Catholicism, those who hold to uh, the Protestant faith, and really try and have good, intelligent dialogue that encourages fruitful discussion. So anyway, hope you enjoyed the show. Look forward to seeing you all next week. God bless. <laughs>